Mars with Robohub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hello and welcome to the Robohub podcast. In today's episode, we'll be learning about NASA's Mars rover and the team behind this incredible piece of technology. For over seven years, Dr. Janet Wertesi, Assistant Professor of Sociology at Princeton, has been studying a number of NASA teams. As an ethnographer, Wertesi is interested in the interrelationship between science, technology and society, including how we gain scientific knowledge through technology. For her PhD, she spent two years immersed with the Mars Exploration Rover mission to study how scientists and engineers use digital images to conduct scientific research on another planet. And then she wrote a book about it called Seeing Like a Rover, How Robots, Teams and Images Craft Knowledge of Mars. Rotesi spoke to our interviewer Audro about her experience living and working with the Mars Rover team, her observations about the team's leadership and use of technology, and their relationship with their robot, millions and millions of miles away on Mars. Hi, welcome to RoboHub's podcast. Hi, it's great to be here. Would you introduce yourself? Sure, I'm Janet Rotesi, and I'm an assistant professor at Princeton University in the sociology department. Mm-hmm. And would you tell me about what motivates your work? Sure. I study robotic spacecraft teams. I study large groups of scientists and engineers mm -hmm. who have to work together to command a robot at millions of miles away. And in order to do that, they need to not only build the robot and send it into space, but they also have to figure out how to make decisions behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. And that's the stuff that really interests me. Oh, yeah. Would you tell me a little bit about your background? Sure. I come out of a field called Science and Technology Studies, which is an interdisciplinary field that brings together history, sociology, anthropology, philosophy, um, and increasingly communications and informatics to study technologies in social life, um, as well as the production of science and scientific knowledge. So um, I have a background actually in history of science originally, and then transferred over to more sociology of science, which is when I started working with these NASA spacecraft teams. So um, my training as I came to the field was um, an ability to study how knowledge is made in a social environment, how mm -hmm. people interact in order to make sense of the world around them, but also um, how, what kind of role technology plays mm -hmm. in their organization and in their social world. And, um, and so that's a huge part of the, of the work that I do. Mm -hmm. How did you choose this field? How, what was really interesting about it to you? Well, I was always interested in science and engineering and technology. I was a you know, big computer nerd growing up. I ran the BBS in my high school. What is BBS? <laughs> I was wondering if you would ask. They're the bulletin board systems from the 1990s when you used to phone in using a modem on your computer. <laughs> yeah. and you'd like, be part of a hub and send proto-email and play online games, but it was like rather constrained. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> it was... <laughs> Um, and I was always really interested in science also, but I found as I got into high school and college that even though I was fascinated with the ideas, I wasn't so excited about um, 
coding or about, you know, pipetting. I didn't want to be in a lab pipetting something mm -hmm. for ages, but I was super interested in the ideas and the history and the people that created these objects. So, um, so that's how I ended up getting interested. And I had a professor as an undergrad who introduced me to the topic. And I thought, that's amazing. I didn't know you could study the people involved in science and technology, which is uh, increasingly becoming relevant in, in our social world today. Mm -hmm. And would you tell me about Seeing Like a Rover? Yeah, sure. It's my first book, which came out with the University of Chicago Press a couple of years ago. And it's based on two years of being ethnographically immersed with the Mars Exploration Rover Team. Mm -hmm. So those are the rovers that were launched in 2004, and they only just wrapped up their exploration. One died in 2011, and the last one was was just declared lost a couple of weeks ago. Um, and so the work that I did was to become a part of a member of the team and see how they did their work and how people collaborated and the sorts of ways in which they interacted with each other and with the robots. And that that was a uh, that there was an ability to study that and understand mm -hmm. like what are the team dynamics here that are actually producing um, the successes that we're seeing on Mars. So seeing like a rover as a book goes over that ethnographic uh, work in detail and tries to give you a sense of front row seat of what it was like to be on the Mars rover team mm. as they were making decisions about what the robots were going to do, um, as they were working with the data coming back from Mars, trying to make discoveries about whether or not Mars was once wet mm -hmm. or had a different climate than Earth. Um, looking for signs of water and really trying to understand the way that the scientists interacted in order to solve problems and to do science on another planet. Gotcha. For some context, can you tell me a little bit about their team? Sure. It's a it's a single principal investigator team, which is um, unusual for NASA. In the 1990s, there was a big uh, budget cut uh, at NASA, and there was a recession. And so the administrator introduced a whole new series of missions. And frequently, before that, NASA used to fly big spacecraft with like, you know, 13 different instruments. And each instrument was run by a different principal investigator. And all of those instruments were different. So all of those instruments were different, and they all sort of competed with each other for time and resources. Mm -hmm. But under this new scheme, which was supposed to be cheaper... Um, they could uh, just give the money to a single principal investigator for like a small team. And so that's the kind of team that the Mars Exploration Rovers was, was led by a single principal investigator based at Cornell University, which is where I was doing my PhD. Mm -hmm. um, and he had assembled a, a small group of scientists and some engineers at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory to build and fly this robot for under a, million, uh, under a billion dollars, which is actually not a lot of money for NASA. Mm -hmm. um, so the team itself is a little unusual in that it's relatively small, relatively flat. It has lots of different uh, scientists at various stages of their careers. It has grad students. It has people that have been working on missions and, at Viking and Voyager, like going way back. Um, but despite those differences, the team maintains a flat hierarchy and tries really hard to work together as a collective. Hmm. And so that was one of the things that was quite interesting to watch. How large exactly, or like approximately, was the team? Well, it varies at different times. When I watched it, there were about 150 core scientists that were involved, but that included the graduate students and uh -huh. uh, sometimes the undergrads who were doing some of the research assistants and then all the way up to different various administrators. Mm -hmm. But they were also spread all over the United States at a bunch of different institutions. Mm -hmm. So they weren't all based at a NASA center. They were at different universities. Gotcha. And then what did it look like to be an ethnographer 
in this team? Well, like, what not, was your day to day like? What was my day to day? The the primary thing I observed was meetings, and I always joke that I'm like a professional meeting observer <laughs> because. Um, I got really good at going to other people's meetings. That's so funny. Um, so they would have these meetings every day for the rovers, for each robot. Yep. And it would last for about an hour. And in that hour, they would have to come to consensus, like unilateral agreement about what the robot was going to do the next day. Uh-huh. So they had to start by figuring out where they were and what it was they were looking at and what was surrounding the rover. And also think about not just the immediate uh, tactical goals of the day, but also, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> but also strategically what they were trying to do over the long term in that area on Mars. And then they had all of these different uh, experts. Some of them were engineers, some were scientists. And they sat together in this room, also kind of virtually. So they would call into the room together. Mm-hmm. And they had a little bit of a video conference link, but it was pretty primitive. Uh, and they would, they would call in and, and have conversations about what it was they were seeing. And within an hour, they had to decide what they wanted to do the next day. And they had to have a whole plan laid out for the robot in their command software. Mm-hmm. And then after that, everyone would go their separate ways, spend their time coding their little piece, send it into JPL at the end of the day. There was another meeting that I didn't attend where they would sit down and just make sure everything was all ready to go mm-hmm. and then send it to the robots. Um, the other meeting that I went to was once a week, the scientists got together and they talked about the science that they were doing. Mm-hmm. And that meant that they um, compared really early results. Like sometimes they hadn't even calibrated things. Like every, things had just come down from the spacecraft and they were trying to figure out what are we seeing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What does this mean? And sometimes they had long extended conversations about where they should go. So those meetings could last 20 minutes or they could last three or four hours. I mean, they were those could be really long because they were trying to get some agreement yeah. about what it was that they should do. And then it also meant that I went to, you know, I, I worked as a calibrator. So I was an oh. image calibrator on the mission team and I was a chapter in the book about that. Um, I went to their, their conferences, their events, their weddings. I went to the robot <laughs> funeral. Like, oh. I mean... So really, it was a question of sort of being present where the action is, yeah. as we say in ethnography, and trying to understand as much as possible about the science they were doing, but also about the relationships that they were working with. Mm-hmm. Now, so for you attending all of these meetings, you were the image calibrator. <laughs> yes. Was that, like, was it a full-time role for you in addition to, like, did you actually, was it a significant responsibility, but you were primarily observing, or how was mm-hmm. it? It was kind of a lighter role. It was mostly designed for undergraduates to sort of get their feet wet and and learn a little bit about planetary science because the field of scientists that work with um, these robots in space, it's not astronomy, it's planetary science. And they tend to be based in all kinds of different departments, so it can be hard to know like how to get started. And it tends to be the sort of thing that you would practice as a PhD student and not necessarily an undergrad. So... So the, it was kind of a light role. It, it took several actually it took several hours a week, and it meant you would sit down. You, oh, wow. you signed up for shifts, and you would sit down, and it often took you know, two to four hours to calibrate all the images. And it depended how many pictures the rover took yeah. the day before. So <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes they were marathon sessions, and sometimes it was a little lighter. So it was, um, but it was it was a way you know as an ethnographer you're always looking for a way to give back. Yeah. Because ethnography you don't want to just be there. You don't want to just be there watching everyone. Yeah. So you have to be involved in some. You have to have it's some responsibility. Useful. Yeah, it's often useful to know how feel like you're giving back to the team in some way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Gotcha. And then what kind of things did you do during these meetings? You were, so you're taking notes to understand kind of social dynamics that are occurring that allow this team to function and drive their robot on Mars to investigate things. What, what did this look like for you investigating? Mm-hmm. Well, it's kind of a question about what ethnography is, I think, and what ethnographers do. Um, So ethnography is a technique that was developed in anthropology at Mm -hmm. the turn of the 19th to 20th century. It mostly involved people going off and living, you know, on some island somewhere and Mm -hmm. figuring out what the people were doing there and then writing about it and trying to explain something fundamental about human life or human culture, human Mm -hmm. dynamics. And that was picked up and taken into sociology in like the 1920s, through the 30s and 40s, mostly in urban centers in the United States, where people were trying to understand the dynamics of social life in America. Mm-hmm. Um, so ethnography is a very versatile tool. It's used often in industry also for building technologies and technological products. Mm-hmm. So I do a lot of work also in human-computer interaction, where ethnography is a very common practice. Um, there are a huge group at Intel, groups at Microsoft, and those kinds of places that study human social life and dynamics with technologies and then use those insights to build new tools. Interesting. So ethnographers typically take copious notes while they're visiting. Um, like, they, what would your notes look like, though? Like, what would you write down? <laughs> what would they look like? Leader said this. Yeah, usually so. in those cases, I'm recording kind of the the flow of the conversation in the meeting. And if there's okay. an argument, who's on what side and what they're arguing about. Um, in these cases, the meetings were highly ritualized. The planning meetings, the daily meetings were very... Um, that doesn't mean they were entirely scripted. Oh. But kind of like, you know, when you go to church or something or to temple, there's like a there's a thing you do at the beginning that you always do. And then there's another thing that you always do. And then there's another time when something else happens and everyone expects it. And then... Then the preacher gives a sermon, and it's different every time, but it's also yeah, part of the ritual. Yeah, Exactly. So it was kind of like that, that it was going to these meetings and trying to take note of how the conversation was evolving. Mm-hmm. Um, I recorded the conversations. Later on, I transcribed some, not all of them, because it was hundreds of hours of That's observation. A lot of work. Yeah, be- um, but transcribed a lot of it and went back through and made detailed notes and connections of what's going on. Interesting. And then uh, also field notes. So ethnographers will also, you know, try to immerse themselves in an experience and then come out and try to write a, almost like a journalistic diary mm-hmm. about what happened that day and what's going on. And then um, we go back over that and what we call coding. You go back and look and see if there's any themes that emerge over time, oh. if there's certain events that it's worth following, that kind of thing. Gotcha. So you take a bunch of data through the whole time. And then what you do is later look for patterns. And this is kind of anything that you view as significant during the interactions that unfold. Yes. Is it fair to say? Yeah, that's probably fair to say, yeah. But it's not just the stuff that you think is significant in the moment. You're also kind of making connections overall and then using that to train yourself to see what to see next. Very interesting. And it's interesting because when you're in the field, there's certain things you think are interesting in the moment, and then what? later on you come right. back and you're like, wait a minute, there's this whole other thing going on, and you can really only see it when you go back through with a different lens. Okay, so tell me about some of these fi- findings that you had. 
Well, so one of the things I noticed really early on, and I was not the first to notice this because it was so obvious on the team, was that people used the word we for the rover, mm-hmm. and they would they would do this, what I called the rover dance, like they would use their bodies to imitate the rovers, and they would do that in the strangest circumstances, like they would do it sitting in a room by themselves on the teleconference call, and they weren't even trying to communicate with someone else, they weren't, you know, it, it was a very strange thing. Um, and at the time, some of the early ethnographers who worked with the mission, anthropologists and sociologists, in the first 90 days, they made some note of this um, and sort of moved on. But I was really interested in how you could explain that as not just a question of making sense of the robot, but as something the team was clearly doing together that was meaningful for them. Okay. So that was one of the big things that I found when I was there. Um, Another significant thing which is related... So, just to see if I understand the last one, you're saying that they used we, Mm -hmm. and also that they positioned themselves like the robot? Were those the same? Yeah, they would... uh, So they would, like, put it, get in a funny position to imagine they are a robot. They would use their arms, like the robot's arm, and they would throw their arms out to pretend to be the solar panels, and they would kind of waddle around like a robot. Yeah, it was really... You know, and you're like, wow, these are grown people with PhDs in science and engineering, and they're, yeah. <laughs> they're doing these very strange things. And they would say, tell these amazing stories, too. Um, and this is in the book. But um, one of them was like, you know, I was working in my garden one day, and all of a sudden my right wrist seized up. And I, I didn't know what happened. Like, it stopped working. And But the next day I went to the rover meeting, and the rover's right front wheel was stuck. Like, that's why my wrist was suddenly frozen, you know. And and I heard stories like this over and over, and I started to see these really strange connections that people narrated between their biographies on Earth and the robots' experiences on Mars. So that was very strange, and it was very, it was un- unanticipated. And, you know, there's other people work... people with PhDs in technology. Totally, yeah. And, and they're telling these stories about these interplanetary connections that they, yeah. that they have, and they're not really sure what to make of it either, because they're, they're like, this is a little weird, and it's going to sound weird, but, you know. So, you know, in much the same way that, um, in the same way that when Opportunity died, there was this huge outpouring of love and affection online, and some of that was from the public, and, oh, this rover means a lot to me. But there was some really emotional... Um, interactions online among members of the team that really spoke again to this extraordinary synergy that they had with these robots and they developed. So that was one thing that was quite unusual. Mm -hmm. Connected to that though was that the team ran itself like a collective and um, even though there was this very charismatic and strong principal investigator, he almost never overtly made decisions. I mean I only heard him really call a decision once or twice. Uh, in two over years, two years? over wow. two years, you know, and and those were like his hand was really forced. Like in one case, a group of musicians had booked the room that they were meeting in, and uh, and they were setting up for a concert. And he was like, "You guys, we have to stop talking about this now." So I'm gonna I'm gonna call it because we need to get out of this room. There's a concert in like ten minutes. But otherwise, you know, those things happen at universities. Um, but otherwise, he was much more of a kind of guiding um, force on the team where he tried to make it that, so that people would uh, break down the barriers and distinctions between them. And there's lots of reasons for those people to have differences. They were scientists and engineers. They see the world very differently. Mm-hmm. Um, different kinds of scientists who have really different expertise, who have all the reason to say, well, your instrument doesn't matter. I want to use my instrument. 
and lots of different engineers who had lots of reasons to not understand the scientists as well. So um, his goal, though, in these meetings and throughout the process was to say that, you know, whatever the team decides together collectively is what's good for the rover. Are you good? Um, whatever the team decides collectively is what's good for the rover, and that that was like the, the guiding principle of how the team worked. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was also quite unexpected because most NASA teams don't necessarily work that way. Large companies don't work that way. But it is interesting because there's an increasing number of small, like startups and laboratories that do try to work that way. Um, so there's there's been a rise of studies in sociology since I've been doing that work that have looked at these collective style teams, especially ones with charismatic leaders. You know, the Steve Jobs, the Elon Musk. You know. Those individuals that also lead often these small integrative teams. Um, so that was another thing that was quite surprising that came out of the results. Mm-hmm. And it turns out those things are linked because in those communities where you really develop a strong bond between members of the community, often they also connect that to some kind of totem object out in the world. That could be a, an animal or a plant or something like that. And in this case, it was a robot. Mm-hmm. So it helped explain some of the really deep synergies, the very physical kind of embodied sensibility that people develop towards their robots. Mm-hmm. And you talked a bit about how this changed from the, when the robot was on Earth to when it went over to Mars. Mm-hmm. Oh. I, it was physical here, but then... Yeah, um, there was a, one of the members that I spoke to said that it was strange because when the, when the robot was on Earth, you could directly relate to each other over something physical. But when that robot leaves Earth, the, the team is what we've got. And so that this importance of thinking about the interconnections between members of the team and the importance of the strength and cohesiveness of the team. And that was the key indicator for team members as to whether or not their robot would be healthy, safe, and doing good science. And um, it's worth noting that those, those things don't have to be linked for different teams. You know, I've observed other teams where that's not the case. What's best for the robot is what the engineer says. <laughs> or what's best for the robot is, uh, I don't know, something, what's good for getting funding. I mean, there's lots of things that could be best for the robot. But in this case, what's best for the robot is making sure the team is highly integrated and working together in a way where people understand each other, there's high degrees of visibility between different expertise groups, mm-hmm. and lots of reciprocity of exchange. So the interdependence level is very, very high. Mm-hmm. And that was the thing that they constantly sought to do. Gotcha. Very interesting. So now you've kind of mentioned them, but can you talk more explicitly about kind of the implications for being on a team? Absolutely. I think, um, let's see. Most scientists uh, are not used to working in teams when they train, although more, more and more engineers train in teams, and they, they realize that the work they're going to do is in a team based in the real world. But many scientists still don't do that, and um, it can be very hard in teams to work with people who see the world differently than you. Mm-hmm. And more and more research is coming out that shows that the diversity of the team in terms of its composition, in terms of its expertise, in terms of its past history of working together really matters for innovation. And so we see people throw these teams together and just kind of hope that sinks or swims, you know? And I think there's a way to pay concerted attention to the kind of team that you're building, to the kind of environment you're fostering around decision-making, who's allowed to speak up and when, how you, how you battle groupthink, 
how you um, how you keep cohesiveness on, on a team. And that even when you're developing a robot, you might think, well, the team stuff is all kind of soft stuff. It's all going to happen after the fact. But actually, no, the robot can be an integrative and integrated part of that team from mm -hmm. the start. And um, what that means is if you have a team that needs to work in that cohesive way, having a robot that allows them to integrate, that gives them, say, a synergistic instrument suite or allows... Uh, a scientist who's not an, an, an expert engineer to take on a light engineering role so they can be on the phone line with the engineers throughout the day. They can see how the engineers work. They can get some sensibility towards how the robot sees the world. There's little things that you can do that are part of the design of the robot and also part of the design of the team. Mm -hmm. So overall, I think that paying attention to teaming is essential um, for when you're building these robots. Um, and also for thinking about how we evaluate their use in the world. And you'll notice, like at this HRI conference that we were at, there's a lot of interest in how robots are interacting with small groups or with individual people. And it's very easy to think about, you know, is the person going to understand the robot? Does it have a face? Like, are they going to like the robot? That sort of thing. But when you're looking at groups, at groups that are larger than five to ten people, maybe the robot's a part of a community. Maybe the robot's a part of a political party. I don't know. Maybe it's, it's part of some larger group. That robot is going to need to be sensitive to totally different dynamics. Mm -hmm. And um, it's not going to work if it doesn't understand how that social world works. Mm -hmm. So it has to understand the context of the group. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, another example, this is a, this is a consensus-based team. But what if you build a robot that was trying to um, be a, a, a medical assistant? Okay. And it's going to go into the hospital, and it, you've got it to be really good at taking temperatures and blood pressure, and it can even give the occasional injection, and that's really great. But if you haven't taught that robot that the doctor's orders override the nurses, if you haven't taught that, that robot about the hierarchy in the hospital and the way that work happens in a hospital, that robot's going to be dead in the water. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter that it can take your blood pressure. Uh -huh. So it's thinking about the sensitivity, not just to what the robot technically has to do in terms of its technical tasks, but what that robot needs to do socio-technically in terms of the social environment that the robot is put into. Very interesting. Yeah. Let's see, and you were saying earlier, in, or in your talk, how the software often looks like the team structure. Yes. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes, I can. There's this there's this law. It's not really a law. It's There's a publication um, by someone named Conway in computer science that goes way back. Um, and it says that the architecture of your, um, your company, like your company's org chart, is basically going to be reproduced as the architecture of your software. And so when I first started talking about some of the work that I've been doing with spacecraft teams to computer scientists, they'd be like, oh yeah, Conway's law. Like, obviously, <laughs> obviously you build the robot that you're, that you're, uh, that's the organization you're embedded in. So if you're in a group with these really big distinctions between, you know, the vision experts and machine learning experts and the, you know, mobility experts, and they each build their own system and they sort of tack it together and hope that it works. I mean, that's the robot you're going to get. And it's yes. the same as the same as your organization. So I've gotten really good at being able to like look at a robot or a piece of software and just be like, oh yeah, I know who built this. <laughs> I know why this menu structure is different in all of these three different parts of the yeah. software. Like you can just read the organization in the object. And that's, um, 
From the code, from the robot. That's yeah, so interesting. Basically, yeah. So part of my, my plea to roboticists and to computer scientists is to consider that, that it isn't just the ta immediate task that needs to be done. It's the way that you put your team together also affects the way that you build the final mm -hmm. product. And then, so making that a little more tangible, what like recommendations do you have for teams in making their product or in structuring themselves for making product? I think it's important to think about what the overarching goal is. Do you need this robot to uh, be part of a group that's going to have many, many different things happening at once and you have to support many different groups that have different ways of doing things? In which case, definitely go for a more modular form. If you need it to support a group that's, uh, that has to come to consensus frequently, that has to integrate points of view, having a more integrated and synergistic platform from the bottom up is going to be essential so that you're, the robot and the team are not working at cross-purposes. Mm -hmm. I hope that is more specific. It is. <laughs> okay. Thank you. You're welcome. And that's all for today. If you enjoyed the insight shared in this episode, check out some of our past episodes at robohub.org forward slash podcast. And if you'd like to support the work that we do, consider supporting us on Patreon. For just a few dollars a month, you can help to keep us going. More information on robohub.org forward slash podcast. And we'll be back in about two weeks time. Until then, goodbye. Mars with Robohub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. <laughs>